straight efficiency with NACFI's Mike Roth and Friends. Here in episode 48, we're joined by Britta Gross. She's a managing director of the carbon-free mobility work at RMI, where we talk about her interest in energy, electricity, and the transportation industry. She also talks about the importance of 2030, the relationship between the automotive and aerospace industries. We also discuss different kinds of electric vehicles, the history of plug-in hybrids, and why we need to remove the barriers that are preventing large-scale adoption of electric vehicles. Today we have joining us Britta Gross, Managing Director of the Carbon-Free Mobility Work at RMI. Hello, Britta. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm kind of interviewing my boss today in some ways, <laughs> so uh, this, this should be fun, and I'm excited to to do a little, uh, you know, walk down history, a little bit of uh, electric vehicles and, and where we're at now and where we think we're going. Uh, maybe a little focus on the lighter side with your experience. Um, but before we dig in, you know, this is about, um, you know, Mike Roth's friends. Uh, and so do you remember when we met and became friends? So what I remember is it was probably right when I joined RMI about two and a half years ago. And I remember a small conference room. I think you were there and a couple other guys. And someone was introducing you and said something about how you were living out of an RV and you were traveling around the country preaching your gospel of fuel efficiency. And, <laughs> and that you were just with every, you know, you were, you were visiting every truck manufacturer, you're, you're visiting every truck show in the country to talk about these things. So I, that, that was my introduction to you and I couldn't wait to meet you. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and I'll say why that intrigued you um, is that I think we go about change uh, in a very similar way, Britta, you and I, it just kind of comes from who we are and our experiences, but, you know, we're very uh, kind of market place driven, you know, the customers will demand things and the manufacturers will create them and that's how change really occurs. Um, so I think we're similar. Um and maybe, maybe that's why, but yeah, I remember that too. And, and uh, uh, it was, it's been fun getting to know you over the years. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and um, you know, what you do now um, at RMI. Hey, I'd love to. Yeah, so let's see, I'm, a, I'm an electrical engineer by, by training. Um, don't use as much of that as I, as I thought I ever would, but I, I come out of industry just like you do. I spent uh, the first half of my career in aerospace uh, doing satellites and satellite communications. Um, I moved from there into the car industry. Uh, there's a lot of advanced technology that's shared between the aerospace industry and vehicles, believe it or not. And uh, from the car industry, I was really interested in the high-tech programs. And so um, I joined Opal for a while and then came over and uh, Opal, Opal's you know, mother company at the time was General Motors. And then I came back and worked at General Motors in Michigan on their EV and on their hydrogen fuel cell vehicle programs. And so now I'm at RMI uh, leading the mobility group where we're really focused on driving electrification of cars, buses, trucks, really focused on 2030 and the kind of scale that we need to get out there to solve some of the uh, problems that we have out there with emissions and so on. And so we're, we're looking both at battery and hydrogen solutions. Um, and then in my spare time, I, you know, I'm here in Orlando living in Florida. And so I'm, I'm on the commission of the Orlando Utilities, uh, well, it's the Orlando Electric Utility, OUC. And, uh, and there I get involved in what's going on on the grid too. So I'm very interested in sort of energy and electricity and what's going on in the electrical system. And then what's happening, of course, all across transportation right now. 
So why why 2030? I mean, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, why 2030 a focus? And I think that's a, a an RMI-wide focus. But, um, you know, we hear a lot of people making commitments and talking about 2040 and 50. And, uh, you know, kind of you get your eyes rolling like, wow, that's a long way off. And then, you know, we're living in the now and making decisions over the next couple of years. But why 2030? Yeah, that's a really good question, Mike. You know, if you if you look at what's happening across industry and, and co- the corporate world and even across government, there's a lot of uh, uh, there's just broad uh, agreement that we've got to get it get to some kind of net zero carbon uh, point by 2050. And to do that, you got to look at what has to happen like right now to get to 2030 and 2040 goals on that pathway. And so if all we do, it always feels like a long time from now to talk about 2050, oh, we got plenty of time. We'll let our kids worry about these problems. But when you sort of back out what we, what the kind of reduction in emissions we need to see by 2040 and then back up to 2030 and even look at the next couple of years, these things are big decisions that take a long time to implement. Do we move off of coal and do more with solar and do more with wind? and and, and what about transportation? You know, how it takes, it takes years to develop, uh, you know, the technology you need on these vehicles and, and a program might take three, four, five years to actually get on the road. So those decisions have to be made now so that some of the emission reductions can come by 2030. And so, um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's why the focus on the near term, because these things take many, many years to execute. And so we're really focused on the near term and what, yeah. what we should be doing right now. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote or something somebody I heard that said, um, you know, if you want a shade tree, um, you know, you should have planted it 15 years ago, but the second best time to plant that shade tree is today. There you go. Beautiful. Beautiful. (laughs) So let's talk about electric cars. Uh, So take me back in your GM days. I mean, what, 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 um, uh, you know, when, how long ago, when was it? Take, let's just, let's just, like do a, a, a history warp here and go back. Uh, tell us what years those were and, and describe the situation um, you know that you were in and the in the industry was in in, in the first in those sort of, of days of the electric car. Yeah, let me I mean let me walk you from aerospace into automotive first because you know there there's there's quite a, it's quite an interesting history out there. So I mean I've always been interested in a challenge. I kind of mentioned that before. 25 years ago, back in the 80s and 90s, believe it or not, automakers were, were purchasing um, and buying up aerospace companies in order to diversify. Now, sort of the future may not have always looked like, hey, people will always be in cars. And so what else could they do? So they ended up, um, you know, General Motors purchased Hughes Aerospace, Hughes Aircraft at the time. And in those relationships, there were things that were jointly developed, like think OnStar, think about anti-lock braking systems, the lunar rover kind of programs. These things were all done sort of jointly. Um, Not to mention the way you design a vehicle because in aerospace, of course, you don't get to crash 117 satellites just to prove it'll work when it's on orbit. In, In the automotive world, they really wanted to learn is there a better way to design vehicles? Can we do more of it in the computer? Can we can we simulate uh, simulate uh, safety testing and crash testing so that we don't have to go through so much time, not only but also cost and and, and effort to do some of these things. So there was this nice real relationship that grew between aerospace and automotive. At the same time um, that I was at Opel in Germany working on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and then at General Motors in Michigan in the early 2000s then. 
um, you have to remember that GM and others had been going through this a, a little wave of EVs back in the 90s. And the battery, the, the technology was, was really not nearly as sophisticated as what we have today. Um, but back then there was excitement about electric vehicles and maybe what, it, what they could offer. And there was a recognition that we needed to deal with not only um, carbon emissions on sort of a global scale, but also local emissions, just air pollution, tailpipe emissions in cities like Los Angeles and Houston and others. And so there was a wave in the 90s. Um, EV1 was GM's uh, vehicle that, that went into the market at that point. And just a very, very different time. We learned a lot of lessons in those days. But when I think about you know, what happened in the sort of 2006 and seven time period, right? We're working on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. It looks promising. It's got all that electric drive, just like a battery vehicle. Boy, there's a lot of promise. And then the batteries started advancing. We had these lithium ion batteries that were used in your cell phones and other uh, 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 you know, small devices. And I was like, wait a second, we see a path to actually putting these in a different form, much larger scale, putting these in, in electric vehicles. So in 2006, 2007, Bob Lutz, maybe some of you guys know the, the name Bob Lutz and John Lochner at GM. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sat down and on the back of a napkin designed the Chevy Volt and said, look, let's learn some lessons from EV1, which was a pure EV that went about you know, 80, 90, on a good day, maybe 100 miles. And, and they said, we got to deal with that issue. Most Americans drive only 40 miles a day. And so if we could design a vehicle that dealt with that, just 40 to 50 miles a day of electric range, and then would just transition over to its gas engine and go, you know, any special long distance traveling, you could do it. There was a lot of excitement about this idea. And, and, and everyone thought this was going to change the world. There was a lot of excitement, if you remember the car shows back then. So yeah, that would have been, I mean, that was a plug-in hybrid. Yep electric vehicle and exactly. i remember I, re, I remember just the 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 title right um because we, we were already thinking about hybrids you know there were hybrid trucks but those were you know those were very mild hybrids as we would know oh, them yeah. today and so just oh, yeah. I, I remember the first time i heard plug-in hybrid electric car or electric truck um i remember when well, that's that, that describes it right i mean it, you got a plug yes <laughs> It's going to be a dominant battery with a little engine. I mean, it just it just yep. um, you know made a lot of sense. So uh, yeah, go ahead. And this is fun. No, no. So I mean, that was the excitement. So here I am on this. I mean, it was just the media hype. You cannot even believe being on a program where you're the most important thing going on at a at a very you know very large global manufacturer. It was exciting. I'd never been part of something that was so visible in the to the media. Uh, in aerospace, you know, on government programs, you can't talk about stuff. You got to be quiet. You can't take your, you know, can't take your your information home with you. But boy, in this world, I mean, you want to talk about it, get out there, and 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 um, you know, communicate. You know, drive drive awareness here. At the same time, you guys might remember there, you know, the Teslas out there with a with their smaller Roadster, their EV Roadster, Nissan's developing the Leaf program, and all electric vehicle also. So all of this is really. Um, getting a lot of attention, like, hey, is this where this is going? The batteries were proving so much better than the ones in the 90s. And so now it opens up this huge new area of opportunity. And how are we going to, and, and it all opens up this whole area of infrastructure, charging infrastructure. How do we fuel these vehicles? Home charging, workplace charging, public charging. So for me, it was this real excitement of pretty much two industries coming together. You got to fuel these things, you got to have energy sources for this. And you got it. And these vehicles are all electric. 
And so, you know, where do you plug so, them in? How are you going to plug them right, in? Right, right. So recently I was talking to some, somebody about their, their own experience here um, with uh, cargo vans. And, um, you know, they were, they were working hard on a hybrid electric cargo van when just, you know, had a strategy session and come to this epiphany that, you know, let's, let's just get rid of the engine. I mean, there's so much advancement so fast, you know, battery electric. And I think we're seeing that in passenger car where, um, you know, you know, vast majority of the work is on pure battery. You mentioned 40 miles average drives. Um, and, you know, why do we need the the uh, the engine at all and that at engine even if it's small brings a lot of maintenance it brings a lot of downtime potentially it brings uh, emissions of some order so um, are we at a place where you know we won't see hybrids you know that's a really good good point and and you know GM stopped making the Volt for basically that exact reason it was just a lot simpler to design a pure electric. Uh, electric vehicle, battery electric vehicle, right? You don't have the, the two different powertrain systems and the same, the same kind of maintenance and all that stuff. So GM made the decision on that basis and the cost, you know, you don't have to maintain the cost and, and you know, develop a powertrain, you know, an engine and a transmission in these vehicles. So, yeah, I, I think that some of the manufacturers have seen that. I think that um, to be really honest, consumers really struggle to understand what a plug-in hybrid was. They just really never got it that it, it basically can take care of all your driving around town five days a week. And if you go somewhere on the weekend, yeah, you just dip into your, into your engine, go on the longer trips. Right. So I think that the, the, the understanding, the education awareness was really challenging. I am not going to say that plug-in hybrids don't come back again. I think that there are some, uh, there's a lot of attention in Germany right now on the plug-in hybrid solution uh, because folks do want that flexibility of fuel source and so on. So I think that I think that it you know I think I've got three in the driveway by the way I got three plug-in hybrids in the in the driveway that I've been driving you know for for ten different years I you know the kids and I drive these vehicles we love 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 plug-in hybrids so um, but for all the reasons you noted the battery electric vehicle it, they're becoming so capable uh, the range you know is is increasing in leaps and bounds costs are coming down a simpler technology certainly operate you know maintenance of these vehicles is is uh, is much lower than maintaining a you know an engine an ICE engine so yeah I, I, I see yeah that. and, and so then that. yeah right right and as our uh, grid becomes cleaner the um, you know the all electric uh, then becomes a, a much more sustainable um, solution but um, before I kind of miss this you know as we're looking back over the automotive business over the last twenty years at the same time this excitement was growing vehicles got huge right we got pickup trucks and big suvs i mean we had a it that all does that that almost conflicts with um yeah. this doesn't it in some some oh, ways yeah. really really astute comment mike absolutely right um and it's funny you know after the recession in 2008 and 9 there was a dip again in big cars people were going into the smaller more fuel efficient vehicles and then we just saw it just increasing just the, the market share of crossovers and SUVs and pickup trucks in that period from you know 12, 2012 to 2017, let's say, just incredible uh, shift in consumer taste. And this was not just an, an American phenomenon, right? This was happening in Europe, it was happening in Asia, et cetera. So this was a global thing that was changing. So, and you're right, all it did was make it harder to put batteries in these vehicles, because now you got to move a lot of weight with an equally heavy battery. 
and it takes more battery and that drives cost. And now you're putting it in these big vehicles. So yeah, it's a, it was a cycle in there that made it more challenging than just putting a battery into a much smaller, you know, you know, four door yeah. sedan. Before we move on, I've, I've got to, and, and I'm going to another subject, but um, you know, I got to share that. I think one of the root challenges here is that we all own our own car in the United States. And so, you know, we don't like, you know, this whole idea of car sharing or this whole reality of car sharing is, you know, it, it's really hard because we don't even share within our own households. <laughs> you know, you you may have a big pickup truck, but if you've got to drive, uh, you know, a five hour trip for a business meeting in for me in Chicago or something, you know, I might still drive my truck instead of drive the more fuel efficient, um, you know, other, other, my wife's car or a kid's car or something. It's just a, it's a mindset. I think we're changing a little bit, but it's, um, it's, it's definitely ingrained in, in, in the U S. Yeah, for sure. Car ownership is a big deal. And, and to be really honest, we, we do need to look at that equally to make sure that we're checking ourselves on how many miles we travel and, and the emissions that are coming out of our vehicles. I mean, all of this adds up to sort of some other problems that we're causing in society with emissions. And so we do have to look carefully at not only the kind of car we drive, but where we're driving, how far we drive yep. and so on. So I, I think it's a, yeah, you so, it all should be right. At. So th this movement from gas to hybrids to battery electric vehicles, you know, in some ways it makes the, the vehicle simpler, but pushes the challenge to the utility grid. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on with respect to um, making the infrastructure more available quicker and at less cost, and, and then maybe weave in uh, your work at the, uh, in, in Orlando, um, because there you're, you're kind of walking in, you know, the, the, uh, utility shoes as a commissioner there. So, um, what about infrastructure, the grid, making all that happen for these electric vehicles? Oh, good. Yeah, exactly right. So yeah, what stands between us and, and getting large scale adoption of EVs out there? Yeah, we need to think about charging infrastructure, don't we? So, I mean, the beauty of charging infrastructure and, and the way we charge electric vehicles is that it, it is a lot like your cell phone, right? If, if I'm parked somewhere in my driveway or in my garage or I'm at work and you know they've got a charger installed there, it's just opportunity charging. Just charge it while I'm sleeping at every opportunity. I'll, I'll just keep topping off my battery in my car. Um, and so there's a need for some public charging, of course, because you're going to want to um, you know, know that you have the capability to drive across country if you do want to or visit your, you know, your aunt's house. And, and get those kinds of longer trips done and occasional maybe business trips too. So you gotta look at sort of that whole combination of what are we gonna do with residential charging? Is it as simple as charging you know, in your driveway? And the answer is, well, yeah, if you've got access to an outlet in your driveway, you can just plug into a regular outlet. I've, I've been doing that for 10 years. And so, um, so you got home charging, but not everybody has a single family home. So you got folks that live in apartments and condos and and we don't have building codes yet that sort of say, hey, when you're building a new apartment or condominium or even a home, make sure there's just an outlet, an extra place in the garage or in the parking in the parking spot that would allow a future EV owner uh, to plug in that electric vehicle. So those are kind of those are things that we work on. Is what's what's standing? What's the what are the barriers to charging these vehicles? What prevents us from getting you know every uh, consumer into an EV in the next? you know, eight, if not, you know, 10, eight, 10, 15 years. Um, so those are the, some of the things we look at. You look at workplace charging, you look at public charging, how fast 
Do chargers need to be um, you know, delivering power into vehicles? Because if you're on a highway trip, you don't want to stand there for an hour. So we're trying to get charging speeds um, faster up to you know 350 kW right now is, is uh, what's being built and what's uh, in some areas of the country and what some of the manufacturers are designing to. So we're all trying to get to that point where you're maybe plugged in and, and charging for like 15 minutes. Wouldn't that be great if we fully top off a, a battery, a large battery? Yeah, we're talking, you know, in the truck side, we're talking a megawatt or more. But go there ahead. You go. There you go. So I'm, I'm talking about smaller vehicles here. That's always good when you and I get together and talk about the differences here. So, I mean, you got to think about the charging infrastructure. And then, of course, and, and things like permitting is taking too long to get permits uh, delivered. And that means zoning and, and parking rules and all that stuff for, for wherever you want to site a charger. So we get involved in sort of the market barriers that are preventing, uh, you know, uh, private market players from getting into the market and investing in charging infrastructure. You know, what keeps people from putting and dumping money into, into making this charging infrastructure real? We look at the cost of of the charging infrastructure. We wanna make sure it's affordable for consumers. It should be affordable for truck drivers. It should be affordable for fleet operators. So everyone should just understand, you know, so that everyone has a better understanding of how you can save, you know, even you know, two thirds of the cost of fueling a, a truck on diesel or gas should, you know, be a, a nice reduction in, in the fuel cost for uh, charging an electric, you know, car or bus. So I think there's really nice operating savings there. Um, that are really important to consider when you're when you're talking about this stuff, and then you sort of go to the grid side and say, but like, can the grid handle all this? And I think the way I look at the grid is that, you know, back in the '50s, right, we didn't have kitchen appliances, and there was this big wave of of electrifying kitchens with stoves and ovens, and then slowly, you know, late a little bit later, the microwaves came in, and this all happened. This was a big load on the grid, and then air conditioning came in the in the 60s and 70s and folks that were living in very high, hot climates were starting to install air conditioners so the utilities had to get ready for for that load and now we're just looking at transportation here's this next big load coming the beauty of transportation is that trans, the, the on-road vehicles are the the probably the largest load to ever come along but it's also the smartest and most flexible load because when we're sleeping do we really care if our car is charging at nine o'clock at night or three o'clock in the morning. No, not for that sort of every night kind of charging. There's a lot of flexibility there. So the utilities are gonna take advantage of that um, for the benefit of the grid and not have to design too much more generation. So I think those are sort of the things that come to mind about how important yeah. it is to, to get the grid right while we're getting transportation right. Right, right, right. And as I've been, we're getting close to running out of time. It always flies, Britta. But, um, <laughs> as, as, you know, as you've been talking and we've been, you know, thinking about passenger car electrification, almost every one of your comments was going through my mind. How does this affect what we're doing on heavier duty vehicles, you know, buses, trucks and so forth. And, you know, much of it applies, but it just feels like it's, um, you know, it just sort of explodes. The benefits are bigger. The challenges are bigger. I mean, we're talking about you know, looking at, uh, you know, today having electrifying trucks that can go 200 miles, um, you know, much heavier weights than, than cars. And then ultimately, you know, the idea of a 500 mile, 80,000 pound, which is the GVW limit, um, you know, truck that can operate for 10, 11 hours on a single charge or a small opportunity charge. So how do you view uh, trucks? Uh, in this whole uh, in this whole in this whole dynamics. Yeah, I think I think what's trucking is really exciting, isn't it? Um, and and what's really interesting about trucking, it's not homogeneous. There are so many flavors of what goes on in the trucking industry, right? Some 
medium duty trucks are hauling potato chips and, and some of the heavier duty trucks are hauling big, heavy beverages. Um, some are going long, you know, long haul across the country. Some are just um, back, you know, out and back uh, to a depot at night so they can easily charge there at the depot. So I think that what's really interesting is carving up the trucking sector in NACFI. You at NACFI have done such a nice job of sort of trying to segment out what is easily electrifiable across the trucking sector. And then what's up here at the more challenging end? Uh, there are some transit bus routes that just, they're tough, right? They're going through mountainous areas. They got the longer routes. And you look at the long haul trucks and the heavier trucks and you start to say, well, that's maybe a role for hydrogen because hydrogen's got that longer range, quicker fueling. It's an electric drive too. And it's got pathways to zero emission production. So it's got all these good benefits, a little bit more complex at this point. But you know, you start to see that it may not also be a homogeneous battery solution here. We're gonna watch that. We're, we're certainly on top of it and trying to help fleet operators and manufacturers understand the trade-offs. But I think that we might see a, a little bit of a, a more creative solution space. And I'll just say, the other thing I keep my eye on is what's happening on the grid. Because while tra the transportation system is completely um, getting redefined right now, so is the grid. They're trying to go to 100% renewables, solar, wind, landfill gas, it's going 100% renewable. Well, that means a lot of storage. Well, how do you store energy on the grid when the cloud, there's cloud cover or the windmills stop turning? Well, batteries, hydrogen storage. So you can see where these two worlds are like, well, we might need hydrogen storage on the grid to serve that purpose, you know, as we, as we add more and more renewables over the next five, 10, 20 years. But maybe that also then aids us in the way we look at fueling um, heavy duty trucks in transportation. So there is such an opportunity right now coming together the way we transform two industries at the same time. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's so exciting. I mean, I'm gonna have to probably wrap it up there. Well, I guess, you know, you, you bring such passion and excitement, can-do attitude around all of this. Um, maybe as we close out, what's some um, one or two areas that, that you see that might be a gap to making this happen or that we really need to focus on or um, uh, to accelerate it. Are there one or two things, I know there are a lot, but there are one or two that keep you up at night trying to figure out? You know what? Um, I'm just gonna say one is, well, one is getting grid ready. Get that grid ready. We gotta make sure that wherever you wanna put in charging stations, the grid is ready to accommodate that. Think about where trucks migrate in cities, right? These big warehousing districts. We got to make sure because this was not how those system, you know, the electrical system was designed. It was to keep the lights on and maybe to help, you know, move some machinery around, but it was not to power all those trucks that are coming into these depots. So we've got to get the grid ready. That does keep me awake. Um, and, and the way we um, solve charging infrastructure. And then I guess I'm just going to say getting cost out of infrastructure. If, you know, we can't, this can't be a solution that just, you know, continually needs sustained uh, public funding of, you know, local, state, federal funding to keep it going. We've got to transition this to the market. And so market players will only invest money where there's less risk. And, and you take risk away when you get cost out of the system. So we're very, very driven to address those barriers that are actually driving cost into the system. The time it takes to bring power to a site or the time it takes to permit things. Those are all kind of cost drivers. And so, you know, being in that part of the business to look at the cost of these systems and, and how you encourage consumers and fleet operators uh, to, in, to, to, to move to electrification 
is all going to depend on the affordability. And that's yeah. really one of the primary things we focus on. Britt, it's always good talking to you. And it's been fun to let a few other people listen in as we record this pod- podcast. So um, thanks for being with us. And best wishes moving forward. Oh, thank you, Mike. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, too. Great Efficiency with NACFI's Mike Rosen Friends.